Hello and welcome to the Resilience by Design podcast. The Resilience by Design Lab at Royal Roads University, led by Dr. Robin Cox, aims to advance leadership in disaster risk reduction and climate action. Royal Roads University and the RBD Lab sit on the unceded territories of the Kosapsim and Lekwungen ancestors and families. At the Resilience by Design Lab, we work alongside youth and adults as changemakers and leaders to imagine new possibilities for climate action. This podcast is one of many ways to tell the stories of the inspiring changemakers and communities that we work with. My name is Ozzy Lang, and I have the pleasure of hearing and sharing these stories with you. This episode is the final installment of our Open Education three-part series. On this episode, I am joined by Vivian Forsman, Project Manager at the Adaptation Learning Network, and we will be discussing the role of open education in the Adaptation Learning Network, one of the main projects currently underway at the Resilience by Design Lab. Thank you, Vivian, for joining me on the podcast. So I'd just get you to start with your name and um, what you do at ALN and what you did before ALN. I'm Vivian Forsman. I have worked with the Adaptation Learning Network for nearly three years at this point. I worked with Robin Cox to write the proposal initially to get funding for this thing. And then once we were successful in achieving funding, I've been the program manager, which is kind of like the chief bottle washer on all things where I have been the intermediary with all of the post-secondary institutions with their development of courses and basically helping to support the development of the climate adaptation competency framework and building out our social media networks. I've been deeply involved. Uh, Prior to working with the Adaptation Learning Network, I have a long history of working in the higher education sector. I used to work at Royal Roads as the director of the Center for Teaching and Educational Technology, where I was responsible for a team of people that do course design development and educational development. And I held similar positions for many years at University British Columbia, St. Polytechnic in Calgary, Mount Royal University, and BCIT. In all of those roles, I did similar work at the intersection of teaching, learning, and technology. So you might well wonder, what's the connection between my background in teaching, learning, and technology and climate action? And really, it's like so many things within the business of climate action. We need to bring what we know and do from other disciplines into the shared purpose of providing action in every livelihood as it relates to responding to the climate crisis. And so what I've been able to do in this context is bring my background in teaching, learning, and technology to afford the design development and distribution of a bunch of courses that are focused on upskilling people in the business of climate adaptation. And you've, you've already briefly covered what the Adaptation Learning Network is, but could you give a summary of what we do at the Adaptation Learning Network? The funding mechanism with Natural Resources Canada, who provides most of our funding on this, is it's all about capacity building around climate change. And so 
it's really interesting to unpack that idea about what is capacity building. How do you build skills and knowledge in a sector or in a society to take on new challenges? We've interpreted capacity building within the Resilience by Design Lab as providing upskilling through this ancient tool called courses. There's other ways to build capacity. There's applied learning experiences and others. But because we're a post-secondary institution, we felt that building not-for-credit courses and then getting the right people to participate in those courses across sectors was a true capacity building initiative. The other piece of capacity building of course, is to build networks amongst and between sectors, professions, and regions. And so those have been two key parts of the adaptation learning network in terms of capacity building. And so that's how we've interpreted it. Natural Resources Canada funds projects across Canada under this same capacity building initiative. And in each province, they've interpreted capacity building in slightly different ways. You know, some of them are more in-place programming in Indigenous communities. Some of them came to the table hoping to do training sessions in physical places called rooms, where people used to, pre-COVID, hang around and do yellow sticky exercises and breathe each other's air. That didn't work out so well with COVID. And so we were fortunate at Royal Roads that just as we kind of got underway with the program, COVID hit, but we were already leaps and bounds ahead of some of these other projects with capacity building because we were familiar with how to deliver learning in a digital way. So we've sort of combined the capacity building of courses with the COVID era reach of digital participation. Speaking of digital, all of the ALN resources and courses are open under Creative Commons licensing. How does that play into this idea of capacity building? So the climate crisis is a crisis. It's a pretty serious thing. We need ways and means of advancing the knowledge around climate issues that extends the reach as broadly and as quickly as possible. Having learning resources tightly bound in a, behind a firewall where people can't get access to them just seems like the wrong approach to a knowledge sharing strategy around a crisis. So right from the get go, we said we need to make the learning resources that we develop as accessible as possible. Now, to be frank, when we first introduced this idea to our participating post-secondary institutions, they were a bit tepid, to say the least, about having open resources because we are dealing with the continuing and professional studies units of post-secondary institutions whose mandate in each university or college is to actually generate revenue by having people pay for courses. And so this community had not had any experience, quite frankly, in working with open resources. And they were very cautious and sometimes quite resistant that if we were to create open courses, this would compromise their revenue model. 
we worked with them, we listened actively, and we gave them examples that come out of the for credit programming side of the house that others that you've interviewed, like Amanda Coolidge and Tannis Morgan and others talk about a great deal, is that by creating open learning resources, you actually establish yourself as a thought leader in a particular discipline. And so we kept talking about that model with our continuing studies colleagues at different universities. And they kind of shrugged and said, okay, well, we'll give it a try. And it hasn't had any impact whatsoever on getting participants in their courses who all pay between about $350 or to $600 per course. The value of these open resources is that after somebody takes a course, those resources are accessible. So here's an example. You have a city planner that enrolls in Roy Brooks natural asset management course. They take the course and they get quite enthusiastic about some of the tools and models and information that's been presented. They go back to their municipality and they say to their colleagues, hey, I just took this course and there's this really interesting checklist that I think we should integrate into our practice here in our municipality. They can access it by just going to OER Commons or some of the other repositories where we're keeping this. So it allows immediate sharing of the resources that are embedded within those courses. There are many other examples of how we see those resources being utilized outside the course. Quite honestly, people enroll in a course because they value social learning. I, I've often said, first there was the book, which is a personal engagement with knowledge. And it's not really a social engagement unless you join a book club and you discuss the book in a social context. And then we create public education system where people participate in courses usually in a cohort of other people that are interested. And a lot of the learning happens in situ with the other folks that are in the course where they learn from each other. And the same thing applies in this scenario that we bring people from different professions, different disciplines, different geographies together in a social learning instance in a course where they learn a lot from each other but you can still access those tools and resources and videos independent. And it's like a book. It's still useful, but it may not be quite as useful as if you were having discussions within a cohort and, and hearing other people's interpretations. So we felt that open courses were critical to advance knowledge around climate adaptation as broadly as possible. And we felt that by putting these courses up into open repositories with a Creative Commons license, it would advance the work we're doing and put us in a position of thought leadership around various topics. And our deepest desire is that people use these courses, they modify them, they reuse them, and it becomes a sprinkling of new knowledge wherever it's needed to advance our roles and responsibilities related to climate change adaptation. Who are you seeing coming to these courses when they're enrolling? What professionals are coming to be part of these courses and how does that change the way that these courses are being run? 
Our mandate with these courses is to upskill working professionals, specifically working professionals that are participating in a professional association, like an engineering community, city planners and such. And we focused on people that are associated with a professional association that are basically at the front line of dealing with climate change adaptation. So once again, engineers build infrastructure that is supposed to last 100 years or so. Obviously, engineers need to understand their role in a changing environment because how you used to build a bridge in 1945 is different than how you would design and build a bridge in the year 2021, anticipating floods and other physical infrastructure impacts that are brought to bear from the climate from climate impacts. So engineers, city planners, agrologists that are working with the changes in our agricultural models, biologists that deal with ecosystems, foresters, of course, is a really important one as they deal with forest management and deal with wildfire risk. These are the professionals that we see as the first line of defense, if you will, in dealing with climate impacts. Now, the people that take our courses are those kinds of people because we market our courses heavily through these professional associations. And the executive directors of all of those professional associations sit on our Adaptation Learning Network advisory. So we've got a tight connection. But in fact, many other people show up in these courses as well because climate adaptation ends up being a significant responsibility of municipal governments because they're the ones that have to build up bigger storm sewers to manage flood surges. They're the ones that have to deal with protecting coastlines from a rising sea level. Municipalities are the ones that have to plan their cities in ways where people can take cover from a heat wave like what we're having in British Columbia this week where everything's going up to 42 degrees. People need places to go that have tree cover and and air conditioning, quite frankly. I know it's a controversial topic because that it often involves the use of fossil fuels, but we do know from experiences over the last 20 years that elderly people that don't have access to air conditioning in their homes are at high risk of health issues and death during these heat surges. So city planners have to think about with rising temperatures, where do people go? And so we see people from municipalities coming into these courses. They may not have an accredited professional linkage as an engineer or a city planner, but they're tasked with supporting a social change and infrastructure change at the municipal level. There's a real range of people and that's what makes the courses quite rich because you've got people from all manner of professions. Another one of our courses is project management for a changing climate. Project managers come from all kinds of uh, backgrounds and that kind of interdisciplinary thinking is back to what I talked about earlier. It creates a great social learning environment where people learn as much from their colleagues in a course as they do from the course material. It makes a lot of sense. And last episode, I talked with Tanis, Krista, and Amanda, who have really been leading the charge on open education in many ways in BC. And they talked about the potential for open education to create a community. And I see that aligning with the Adaptation Learning Network really closely because we're also trying to create a community of people who are trying to take action and and adapt to climate change. Absolutely. So here's an example of something we're working on right now within the Adaptation Learning Network. 
it's our third and final year of the project. And so as in any publicly funded project, as you come near the end, you have to present a project evaluation report. We decided that our project evaluation report needs to be something that shares the real essence of the kind of work we've been doing and not be a, you know, a 200 page report that somebody puts on a shelf but it doesn't really get distribution. So instead what we're doing is taking bits and pieces of many of the videos that are in our courses and we're mashing them up into a grand narrative that tells the story of what we've been doing in Adaptation Learning Network, but more important, what the story is about how different communities and professions need to build a trajectory of change within their communities and professions to address the climate crisis. There's many examples in the open education movement about building community. And the interesting thing about this is it takes off in directions that you would never even imagine. A couple of years ago, I had the great opportunity to attend the Creative Commons conference that was being held in Lisbon, Portugal. This was before COVID, obviously. And I had never been to a Creative Commons conference. And it was an absolutely exuberant community of people sharing amazing stories about what openness can do. And I'll just give you one example. I sat in a session that a group of people from the Netherlands were presenting about how they were digging through the archives of the Dutch government and they were finding examples of all kinds of things from early Holocaust and the issue of the Nazis coming in and of course putting Jewish people into camps but there were all kinds of artifacts that had been hidden in government archives that nobody had ever seen like letters from people saying goodbye basically and all of that stuff now has been put up in a repository that is Creative Commons licensed that have helped to connect people 50 75 years after the war to try to uh, reconnect with family, reconnect with their property when, you know, beautiful paintings were taken away and all kinds of stuff. And who could imagine that that example at the Creative Commons conference would create a community 75 years after World War II to actually connect people around their past, their present, and their future. Thousands of really fascinating stories that come out of these Creative Commons sharing of content that we don't have time to go into today, but I encourage anybody that's interested in this to go to the Creative Commons website where they have many examples of this process of making knowledge open and how it creates new possibilities. That is a fantastic example. I know that throughout most of the interviews that I've done for the podcast, the experts have always been talking about how do we invite people into the climate movement, into climate adaptation. And I see this Creative Commons and this open education as that invitation in. The ALN network is really allowing all of our resources and pieces to go out into the world so that they're accessible by people around the world to then remix and, and use in a way that helps them to really take this on for themselves. 
Absolutely. And here's another example of what we are doing. We are posting our courses with Rich Media in the We Adapt platform. We Adapt is an organization run by the Stockholm Environment Institute. They're based in the, the United Kingdom. Their mandate is really to bring climate adaptation know-how generally to the world, but it's a little bit more focused on developing countries. And obviously the issues in Ghana and Bangladesh are different than the issues in Victoria, British Columbia. However, we learn from people in Bangladesh and we are delighted if somebody in Bangladesh might take pieces from our course about project management for a changing climate and remix it for use in their context. And that is already happening. We've connected with some leaders that work for Commonwealth of Learning who are very excited about using some of our learning resources developed through ALN through their network worldwide through Commonwealth of Learning in Mauritius and Ghana and other places. So one of the things we've learned with the climate crisis is there are no boundaries and there should be no boundaries in upskilling people about how to deal with it. It's a powerful tool when you're able to take the expertise that is here in BC, like Roy Brook, for example, comes to mind, who is a expert in natural resource management, or even Michelle Patterson, who's going to be teaching the upcoming policy or climate policy for, for adaptation professionals. I think about those two and how their expertise is then accessible to people across the world. And Absolutely. It goes back to what I said, that by being open, you establish your position in thought leadership. If you're closed, you have to hope that somebody far away finds you through luck and golly, or maybe you publish a book, but they still have to pay $30 to download it onto their Kindle or whatever. This way, you establish your thought leadership broadly with no boundaries. And that brings me to this idea of there's often times where we in the global north will go into the global south and look at these these countries that are considered developing countries and we're pushing the knowledge onto them. This open education really breaks that barrier down to say here's knowledge if you'd like to use it and then localize it and take yeah. takes expertise and then make it your own so that you can solve the problem in your own way and in your own unique way, it really solves that problem of experts going in and telling people what to do. Absolutely, right? and the, the vectors of knowledge absolutely need to work both ways because of course in vulnerable communities, there have been more impacts than perhaps what we have currently experienced in British Columbia. And so we need to learn from those experiences. The vector also on this topic works, I hope, with indigenous communities where they bring knowledge into the climate conversation that is absolutely critical because indigenous communities have been environmental stewards from day one. Unfortunately, our capitalist and colonial system hasn't celebrated their knowledge and utilized it in a way that is effective. And the time has come to bring that knowledge to bear on dealing with the climate crisis. And my last question for you here is, why are you passionate about open education and climate adaptation? First of all, I'm passionate about open education because of everything we've talked about here, that knowledge that is kept behind firewalls is a waste of 
a great asset. We live in a society where we all have information overload, but what we what seems to be scarce or still somewhat scarce is the ability to make valuable knowledge and put it back into a circular economy of knowledge where somebody else reuses it for localized localized purposes. It's just a critical thing in a society that we live in where we have many very complicated problems to solve and we need to make knowledge as free and open as possible. And, you know, certainly we've just even seen this with the pandemic, with the lockup, if you will, of the patents on the vaccinations that have inhibited the ability for other companies to jump on board and create uh, lookalike vaccinations to extend to billions of people, not just millions of people. And there's so many examples that we have in our current times where intellectual property and patents actually inhibit the common good. And so that's why I'm excited about open education. Why am I excited about climate action and climate adaptation? Well, it's because I'm an active member of my community and my family, and I see all of us with a future. There's no person anywhere in any livelihood that should not reflect on what's my role and responsibility in the climate crisis. And so for me, working on this Adaptation Learning Network has been a great opportunity to bring my background that is at the intersection of teaching, learning, and technology and apply it to a very important issue. And that is building courses that help in the upscaling of people to deal with the climate crisis. I I really feel like you brought that passion and that understanding that your background might not be in the specific climate adaptation or climate action. That's not your expertise, but you were able to use your expertise in educational modeling and understanding that piece to really make a huge impact in climate adaptation. And that's really the invitation that you're inviting everyone participating in the Adaptation Learning Network. It absolutely is. I'm very open about the fact that from a professional point of view, I don't have a deep background in biology or in environmental policy or any of that kind of stuff. But I've been able to come into this space and hopefully move the dial just a little bit. But I will add that I have a picture sitting here on my mantelpiece circa 1990, where I'm with my daughters, Erica and Natalie, and we're at an Earth Day in Vancouver. And my four-year-old and my two-year-old are each carrying Save the Whales and Save Our Forest signs as we walk over the Burrard Street Bridge at Earth Day. So I will say that I've always been aware of the environmental crisis and done bits and pieces around the edges. But quite frankly, marching once a year in an Earth Day effort or putting my plastics out in my blue box, none of these things are substantial enough to move the dial on dealing with the climate crisis. What will move the dial is if we each look at what we can do through our workplace, through our livelihood, to see how we can influence change making in our organizations to shift our thinking about what is purpose of our organizations and adapt it to a changing world. Thank you so much for your time, Vivian. Thanks for listening. If you are interested in taking a course through the Adaptation Learning Network, or looking through some of the open resources, 
the ALN website will be linked in the podcast description. I hope each of you have a wonderful day.